dead people don't come back to life. Zombies are not real, all you Walking Dead fans. A three-day dead corpse whose heart has not been beating, whose lungs have not been breathing, whose brain neurons have not been firing, does not come back to life. It is a medical and scientific impossibility. Yet that's exactly what we're celebrating today. That a three-day dead corpse came back from the dead completely and fully. And to be clear, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not a powerful metaphor. It's not just a picture of after winter comes spring. It's not just a symbol of new beginnings. No, we believe and we celebrate today that a three-day dead body came up out of a grave. We celebrate today that Jesus, who was killed on a cross, was resurrected from the dead. This is what we celebrate because this reality, this verifiable historical fact, changes everything. It changes human history. Since January, we have been preaching through the New Testament epistle of 1 Thessalonians. And providentially, we arrive today on Easter Sunday at a passage that is incredibly relevant to this truth and what we're celebrating today, resurrection hope. So hopefully you have a booklet. You can turn to the message notes that are there in the booklet, or you can look in your Bibles at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is going to be the launch pad for the message today. The Bible says this, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now let me tell you the context here. This small fledgling church in the city of Thessalonica, which is in northern modern-day Greece, had only been in existence for just a few months. But they had begun to experience, because of their conversion to Jesus Christ out of paganism and idolatry, they had begun to experience hostility, oppression, and persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And so Paul is writing to them in an experience that is hopeless. And he's writing to them to engender in them and to communicate to them hope and give them reasons to be hopeful. Now the central component he points to for their hope and friends for our hope is what we're celebrating today, namely that Jesus is alive. Namely what he said there in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Friends, this truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus not only just brings temporary hope, it brings lasting, tangible, real hope. By the end of the last century, those who study such things, sociologists, have recognized that there was really a hopeful sense among particularly Americans. Because of the 20th century, it was so riddled with difficulties and hardships. You have 
from the beginning of the century, the 1918 pandemic that killed upwards of 5% of the whole world's population. You have World War I that killed 40 million people worldwide. Then you have the Great Depression. Then you have World War II that killed 70 million people worldwide. And after World War II, you have the growth of communist countries and states and the aggression they had against democracy. You have the Korean conflict, the Vietnam War, and then many of us lived through what's known as the Cold War, where for some 30 years... The world's two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, had nuclear weapons enough to annihilate our planet multiple times over, aimed at each other. And what's worse, at the end of the 20th century, in the 1970s, disco dominated the airwaves. It was a hopeless time. But in 1989, something happened. The Cold War ended. The Berlin Wall came down. The Soviet Union was dissolved, and disco was dead. And all of a sudden, people have reason to be hopeful. And so when the calendar turned in the year 2000, it turned not just to a new year, not just to a new century, but a new millennium. And we all survived Y2K, right? And with this new millennium, there was all kinds of expectancy, all kinds of hope, all kinds of anticipation, until 21 months into this Millennium, with all types of promise, four hijacked planes brought our nation to its knees. And you remember, as I do, there was all kinds of brotherly love, there was camaraderie, but it didn't last long. In just a little bit of time, the divisions and the hostility and the compartmentalism of our culture was alive as ever, until we had the salvation of Facebook and Twitter. No, that was gasoline being poured on the division of our country. And today, in Waltz's 2020, like he owns the place. And we've experienced a year like no other year ever before. And I know as a pastor, I have had conversations in this last year of people who are dealing with difficulties and hardships. Research tells us that depression among American adults is three times higher than it was just a year ago. Suicide rates have skyrocketed. Why? There is no hope. There is no hope. And even with all of our ingenuity, even with all of our scientific discoveries, with all of the advances in technology, with all of our medical breakthroughs, we are still as hopeless as a society as ever. Why? Because none of those things as captivating and as intriguing as they are, friends, they don't bring the lasting hope that they promise. They don't bring purpose or fulfillment. But this Easter Sunday morning, I want to tell you three words. There is hope. I don't know if you've heard that before. <laughs> There's hope. And the hope that this wall is pointing to is precisely the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, there's two primary principles I want to look at this morning regarding the hope that comes from the resurrection of Jesus. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to think about the verifiable reality of the resurrection of Christ. Here's something we need to know about the Christian faith, our faith as Christians. We have what's known as an historical faith. You see, Christianity opens with this. 
this is what has been done. This is what has been accomplished. Whereas many faiths and many religions open with, this is what you must do. You must follow this code of conduct. You must adhere to these practices and principles. Christianity, while we have practices and principles, we ought to live holy lives, we don't open with that. Many other religions point to their leaders or their prophets or their gurus and say, emulate their example. Model your life after their lives. That's not our word. That's not our story. It's not about what we do. It's about what has been done. Our faith is a historical faith that is rooted in historical realities, namely Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was a real human being who walked in this planet, the Son of God who came to be in existence through the virgin birth, through Mary his mother, and as God in the flesh, he was tempted in every way you're tempted and I'm tempted, in thought, in word, and in deed, but he never succumbed to a single temptation. And as such, he was not deserving of any penalty, much less an excruciating penalty of death on a cross. But we believe also in the death of Jesus, that he did in fact die on a cross. But beyond that, he was buried in a tomb and he was resurrected on the third day. This is the truth we believe in. Now, I say this is historical in our faith. How do we know? Well, friends, how do we know anything in history is true? How do we know anything in history actually happened? All the things I mentioned in the 20th century, well, there are still people alive, some of you, who remember those things happening. Further, we have the advancement of photography and videography. We have visual evidence of those things happening. Think of our own nation's history. How do we know George Washington was a real person? How do we know he crossed the Delaware River on December 25th, 1776? How do we know Benjamin Franklin was a real person? How do we know he flew a kite during a thunderstorm to discover electricity? How do we know these things? Nobody's alive who can attest to them. There's no photograph or video evidence. We know it's true because we have historical record of people writing it down. The same is true of ancient history. A thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, and even sooner than that. How do we know that before the time of Christ, there were Greek philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, who were contemplating the fundamental questions of human existence and purpose? How do we know? Because it's written down for us. We have a historical record. And friend, the same is true for the life of Jesus. In fact, abundantly more so do we have historical record of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I want to point to, though I could point to many evidences, I want to draw your attention to two particular evidences about the resurrection of Jesus that confirm to our hearts and to our minds that it is, in fact, a historical reality. The first evidence I draw your attention to is the fact that there was and is an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb. 1 Corinthians 15, you can see that scripture on your outline. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 gives a brief summary of the gospel. In fact, many scholars believe that what he writes here is actually a common, very well-known, memorized catechism or doctrinal statement that early Christians committed to memory. Notice what he says. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, this doctrinal truth. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
And it's important to point out here that an element of what the early Christians believed was not only that Jesus was, was killed and not only that Jesus was resurrected, but listen, they believed Jesus was buried in a tomb. Why is this important to believe that Jesus was buried in a tomb? Here's why. You don't put living people in tombs. You don't put alive people in a grave. Dead people go in a grave. And here's what's important. If any of Jesus' followers claimed that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and if his body was still in a tomb, all the skeptics and all of their opponents could have simply pointed to his body. Oh, it's still in the grave. It's still there. And the resurrection ideas would have been D-O-A, pun intended, dead on arrival. But they couldn't because the grave was empty. It's interesting, the Apostle John in his gospel account, the Gospel of John, he records how he and the other Apostle Peter discovered the empty tomb and their response to that discovery. Look at John chapter 20, verses 5 through 7. The Bible says, In stooping in to look, he, that's John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, rambunctious Simon, came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Interestingly, when John records them discovering the empty grave, the empty tomb, it's interesting the word choice he makes here of this discovery. When he talks about himself, he says, he looked in. That's just the common word for look in the Bible language of Greek. But when he describes Peter's looking in, it's not the same word. The word he uses there is the word from which we get our English word theorize. When Peter walked in the grave, he began to theorize. You know what theorizing is? It's what scientists do when they observe a phenomenon and they try to theorize what causes this. Where did this come from? They use powers of reason and deduction. And Peter walks in. He sees the grave clothes that were tightly wrapped around Jesus lying there neatly. He sees the head covering that was on Jesus' head. And he sees it folded neatly to the side. And he begins to theorize. He begins to postulate a theory. How did this happen? Well, how did it happen? What happened here? Well, when a body was buried in those days, it was something like a mummy. They would take strips of linen cloth that were soaked in oil and spices so as to preserve the body, and they would be tightly bound around the corpse, and then they would bury it. And the head cloth here we see was was not unraveled in a heap. It wasn't a pile of clothes just to the side. They were neatly folded together. Here's the thing. Why did this happen? Think about it. If enemies of the Christians, would have stolen Jesus' body out of the tomb, would they have taken off the linen cloths? No. It would have been day three of decomposition. They most certainly would not have taken off the linen cloths. Well, if the followers of Jesus were just beginning this elaborate hoax of the resurrection, if they stole the body, friends, out of honor for their friend, they wouldn't have taken Jesus' naked body out as well. Well, what about this? Some postulate that, well, here's what happened. Jesus actually just swooned. He just was in kind of like a three-day coma. He came to, and then he unwrapped himself and walked out. You think a, a man who is near death would have the strength to take off the tightly bound linen cloths, and what's further, 
Why would any of these folks, <laughs> the enemies, the friends, or Jesus himself, take the time to neatly fold everything together and set it down? None of them would. And so when Peter theorizes, why is this like this? He came to one conclusion. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and he believed. They saw the evidence. They did some theorizing and they came to the only conclusion they could come to. This empty tomb proved Jesus was alive. Here's the second area of evidence I'd like to point out. And that is the evidence of eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. A large number of people from a diversity of circumstances and backgrounds all testified to the fact that Jesus was, in fact, alive, that they saw him alive. They engaged with him alive. This was not just one or two wackadoos. This was not just a staged event that, you know, was an illusion like David, David Copperfield moving, you know, the Concorde jet. These were up close and personal, multiple groups. In fact, he's recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in the city, in the country, inside and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening. To some, he appears by appointment. I'll meet you here then. To others, he appears spontaneously, just shows up. He's seen up close. He's seen at a distance. He's seen on a hill. He's seen by a lake. He appears to groups of men. He appears to groups of women. He sees individuals. He gathers with large crowds, as many as 500, more than what are gathered here today. He's seen sitting. He's seen standing. He's seen walking. He's seen, most importantly, talking. Jesus was alive. And there are hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses who say, yes, I saw him. I heard him. I embraced him and touched him. He was alive. In fact, there in 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul gives that brief summary of the gospel, Paul then gives a summary of the eyewitness evidence. Look at it. Verse 5 says, and that after that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Sleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now there have been all types of explanations given to explain away these eyewitness accounts of the hundreds and hundreds of people who proclaim they saw Jesus alive. Some people say, well, it is all a well-orchestrated, elaborate hoax. Here's the thing. People don't die for a lie. Oh, they'll die for a lie that they believe someone else told them. People won't die for a lie they make up. They cave. They give in. Nobody ever caved. They all went to their graves proclaiming this. Others say, well, this is just a, a psychological phenomenon known as wish fulfillment. Here's what wish fulfillment is. You want something to happen so bad, you believe it actually did. Others say, well, no, this was all just hallucinations. Here's the thing. With these evidences that I've given you, both the empty tomb and the eyewitness account, they make all these explanations highly implausible. For instance, how do 500 people have the same hallucination at the same time? It doesn't happen. What this means, friends is we're left with these two irrefutable acts that the tomb is empty and hundreds and hundreds of people saw Jesus alive. And what was the consequence of these truths? The, the church in Jerusalem, the first church, exploded with people. 
tens of thousands of people at the risk of their own lives and their own consequence in their community turned to faith in Christ, many of whom saw Jesus themselves, most of whom knew somebody who did. Now, here's the thing. You may be able to affirm in your own heart and mind, yeah, it's true. Jesus did, was resurrected from the dead after the third day. But what does that mean for us 2,000 years later? What's the point of it all? Well, that leads to the second thing I want us to see, and that is this, the transformative results of the resurrection. You know, unfortunately, our discussion, is, as Joe mentioned a moment ago, of the resurrection often gets just relegated to this Easter season. My wife, Amy, she's got multiple sets of decorations for our dining room table. So, for instance, in the fall, it's all brown and orange and yellow colors, and she's got the runner that goes down the center and the the fall-colored placemats, and fall colors give way to Christmas, and out come the red candles and the green garland. When Christmas is over and the new year turns, what does she bring out next? Well, Groundhog Day decorations. It's hard to find Puxatati Phil placemats, but we got them. I'm only kidding. What comes next? Valentine's Day and all the red hearts decorate our dining room table. And then when Valentine's Day is over, out from the drawer come the Easter placemats and the decorations on our dining table. And then when Easter is over tomorrow, she's going to put them all away. And I'm afraid many times we do the same thing with the truth of the resurrection. We gather up in our Sunday best on Easter Sunday. We take out the Easter story. We look at it. We admire it. We dust it off. And then we put it back in the drawer. Friends, the early Christians worshipped on Sunday. You know why? Because every Sunday they were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the transformative truths that the resurrection of Christ brought to their lives and by extension they bring to our lives as well. What are these? I want to point out three. First of all, the resurrection provides for us deliverance from our failures. Is there anybody here besides me who has a laundry list of failures you'd rather forget about? Yeah. Is there anybody here besides me who has experienced the consequences of your own dumb choices. Yeah, we all have. We understand our own failures and our own mistakes and how those decisions have impacted our lives, our families, our marriages, our children, our satisfaction, and our joy. The Bible has a three-letter word for those failures. Sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, that's exactly what the word sin means. It means to miss the mark. It means to not hit the target that God has established for us. All of us have sinned. And by so doing, the Bible says we're all lawbreakers. We have all broken God's law. Now, if you break the law today on your way home, <laughs> you might get pulled over. If you break the law, you'll have to pay the penalty for that. It might just be a fine or it might be jail time. Our understanding of human justice in this world is derived from God's perfect justice in the spiritual realm. God is a just God. God will punish lawbreakers. God will by no means allow guilty people, that's all of us, to go unpunished. But this same God, in a glorious act of love and mercy for you and for me, did something about our 
guilty condition. What did he do? He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who was not a lawbreaker, who was not deserving of the punishment for sin. Yet he did die a cruel and excruciatingly painful death. Why did he do it? Look on your outline at Romans 4.25. The Bible says this, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Let's stop right there. By being delivered up, that's talking about being delivered up to the cross, to the crucifixion. By being delivered up to the cross, he was paying the fine, if you will. He was taking the punishment and the penalty for our high crimes. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned, every one of us, to our own way. But God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice, not only was he delivered for our trespasses, but look how Romans 4.25 goes on to say this. He was raised for our justification. If you are in Christ, the Bible says you are justified. What does that word mean? I've heard it explained like this, and I think this is altogether appropriate. Justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified before God means being declared completely innocent, acquitted of all crimes, But here's the deal. I'm not innocent. I'm guilty. But the righteousness and the innocence of Jesus has been applied to me. And I'm declared not guilty. I'm declared innocent completely. For all those who appropriately respond to what God has done for them, he will give the declaration not guilty, justified, The key component is, have you responded appropriately? The Bible tells us how to respond to this good news known as the gospel. Two words, it's the flip side of the same coin. Repent and believe. Repent means to turn from the rule and the reign of your own life and to surrender control to Jesus as the Lord of your life. And to believe means to trust in, cling to, not just mental assent to a set of facts or historical events, but rely upon and rest on Jesus' work alone. Jesus was raised for our justification. He was raised to give us deliverance from our failures. But friends, not only does the resurrection of Jesus provide us deliverance from our failures, next I want you to see that the resurrection of Jesus rescues us from our fears. We're all faced with all kinds of fears, regularly, anxieties, worry, And I would say over the last 12 months, I've said more and talked with more folks about their fears, their anxieties, and their worries than I have in the 30 years I've been in vocational ministry. Fears about the pandemic, fears about the virus, fears about aging parents or grandparents, fears about family members who have underlying health concerns that make them more susceptible than others, fears about the economy, fears about their jobs, Fears about their small businesses that have razor-thin margins. Fears about personal liberties and rights being infringed upon by our government. All kinds of fears have been communicated to me. Jesus has been raised to rescue us from our fears, from our worries, from our anxieties, 
Christ is alive. So he has rescued us. Here's what happens. The Bible promises, and Jesus put it this way. When someone comes to faith in Christ, he is born again, (laughs) born anew, born of the Spirit. The Bible says in Titus calls it regeneration. The Bible uses metaphors like from darkness to light, from death to life. This is what happens. And here's the promise from the Bible, that those who repent and believe in what Jesus has done receive in their souls the same Holy Spirit, the same third person of the Trinity residing within them that raised Jesus from the dead on that third day. That's called resurrection power. So we can face our fears, our doubts, our worries, our anxieties, our concerns, because for those who are in Christ, you have the same spirit that went inside that decaying corpse in the grave and caused the heart to start beating, caused the lungs to start breathing. Blood starts coursing through his body. Brain neuron starts firing. If you're a Christian, that same spirit is in you. It's called resurrection power. Paul put it this way in Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And here's why this is so transformative. Don't miss this. You see, the Holy Spirit brings resurrection power. And when he does, he personally applies the promises of God to our lives. Here's how it went down. When Jesus died on the cross, he purchased for me the promises of God. When he was resurrected from the dead, he secured for me the promises of God. There are hundreds of promises of God in the Bible. Let me just tell you five. The Bible promises that God hears us when we call upon him. Is that a great promise? The Bible promises that God will bring us through suffering and hardship. The Bible promises that God will provide for all of our needs in Christ Jesus. The Bible promises that God will protect us, and the Bible promises that God will be with us. He will never leave us and never forsake us. These were purchased by Jesus' death on the cross and secured for us through his resurrection from the dead. So friends, again, this is not a concept we just take out at Easter, dust it off, admire it, and put it back in the drawer. This is not something that we should just celebrate even every Sunday. Every moment of every day, we're called to live in resurrection power because Jesus is alive. And his deliverance brings us from personal fear, sometimes paralyzing fear, from our own failures. Here's the third thing as we close. The resurrection of Jesus gives us confidence for our future. Most of us use this word hope multiple times a day. Whenever I came around this theme for 2021 back in October, I began to be very conscientious about my usage of this word hope. And what I discovered was basically the way I use it is not the way the Bible uses it. See, the way we use the word hope in our everyday vernacular and communication is just wishful thinking. Like, I hope I get a raise at work. Wishful thinking. I hope my team wins. I hope, I was saying this last week, I hope it doesn't rain on Easter Sunday. I hope this sermon is over soon. Wishful thinking. (laughs) But the way the Bible uses the word hope 
It's not wishful thinking. It's an absolute ironclad certainty. We have a hope that is certain, that is sure. These Thessalonian believers were particularly concerned about their loved ones who had died. They had members of their local church who the text says had fallen asleep. In fact, turn back in your page on your booklet to our focal text in 1 Thessalonians. I want to read it one more time, these two verses. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul is telling these Christians, you have loved ones who have died. You are experiencing the deep loss and pain of death. But you don't grieve like other human beings grieve. You don't grieve without hope. Ten years ago, I faced a similar situation that these Thessalonian Christians were in. I was in my office right over here, and I got a call from my sister in Florida. She said, Troy, you need to get home quick. Mom's health has deteriorated significantly, and she's not going to last much longer. So immediately I arranged here for things that I needed to arrange for, got in the car and made the nine-hour drive south. As I got to my parents' home and walked in their bedroom where my mom was lying in the hospice-provided hospital bed, I walked up to her. I kissed her on the forehead. I said, I love you, Mom. Her eyes opened up. She said, I love you, Troy. That was the last conscious moment my mom had. Sunday morning, Amy and I are in the spare bedroom at my parents' home, and my dad knocks on the door early. He told us that mom just died. Dad was awake all night long, listening to mom breathe as his wife of 53 years took breaths, and the interval between each breath grew longer and longer and longer until there was not another breath to follow. A couple hours later, the funeral home showed up. The hearse backed down the long driveway, and they unloaded a gurney and brought it inside to remove my mom's body. As the funeral home workers brought her body to the front door, I asked the gentleman to stop for a moment because I wanted to pray. I prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. I thank God for this body that my mom resided in for over seven decades. And then as I closed that prayer, I put my hand on my mother's body and I quoted 1 Corinthians 15, the scripture that's in your outline. And I prayed, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is alive. And we have hope not just for our past failures. We have hope not just for our present fears. We have hope for the future because Jesus delivers us from mankind's greatest enemy. Friend, it's not the Democratic Party. It's not the Republican Party. Humanity's greatest enemy is death. And Jesus has defeated death once and for all. And those who are in Christ will live forever. And that brings me to my last thought. The hope God provides through the resurrection of Jesus is a hope that lasts forever.